And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. There is a poem by a gentleman named Dylan Thomas titled, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. I love this poem. And there's a line that says, Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And when I think about that line, it just evokes an incredible amount of emotion and passion within me. And a lot of people interpret this poem in a number of different ways, but it makes me think about our featured guest. Our featured guest is somebody that I've had a tremendous amount of respect for for so long. She's an author. She is a women's rights advocate, a men's rights advocate, a civil liberties advocate. She is somebody that has been speaking truth to power for so many years, and she's done it when the whole world was against her sometimes. Our featured guest has affected millions of lives for the better, and she has also been warning people in America for many years that our society was closing down, that this was going to be the end of our country, and all of her predictions have come true we're going to discuss it. If you live in the U.S. right now, there's no question we are living in tyranny. And it is horrible to admit that. But the first step in addressing a problem is to admit that you have one, and I think we have to look at it. And again, that line, rage, rage against the dying of the light. I look at that, and I feel the words, and I think about people who speak out who have the courage to speak what is true, what is right, even as those civil liberties continue to regress, or even as popular opinion turns against them, they continue to speak. When I think about our featured guest, and I think about all of her contributions to our society, I think about all the things we can learn from her, and that we can learn from people like her, that we should look at people like this, take their example, and replicate their efforts because it takes strong individuals to keep the flame of liberty going or to rediscover it. I think we're going to have to rekindle the flame of liberty on a worldwide scale based on where we're headed. But I think we can get there because we do have an intellectual foundation. We do have some really strong people. Let us begin tonight's show. It is a great honor to welcome to the program today, Miss Naomi Wolf. Naomi's new books is called Outrages, Sex, Censorship, and the Criminalization of Love. Ms. Wolf, it is a great honor to have you with us. Thank you for being on the program. (laughs) That is so nice of you, and what a lovely introduction. It's an honor for me to be joining you and your your wonderful audience. Thank you for having me on your show. My pleasure. And as I mentioned, um, I'll mention the beginning of the show in the intro, is that you're somebody who I've respected for a lot of years. You actually were able to get me into Ron Paul because you wrote this book called The End of America, which we'll go into later. But I want to let everyone know real quick to learn more about Naomi. Please go to our website at, at outragesbook.com, O-U-T-R-A-G-E-S-book.com. So Naomi, what is your new book about? That is a great question because it is in the middle of a 
pretty big um, kind of unprecedented controversy, um, unprecedented in, in my experience of publishing. So it's um, it's available in Britain and all, all over the rest of the world through Britain, but not available to readers in the U.S. So I'm happy to be able to talk about it. It's um, because it's been embargoed by its publisher in the oh, U.S. Um, yeah. So how come? I'll, I'll tell you in a moment. But it's about this extraordinary figure in history uh, who should be better known, John Addington Simmons, who was um, had the misfortune to be born as a, what today we would call a gay man in 1840, which meant that he came of age right um, as laws were being passed in Britain in 1857, the Obscene Publications Act, and, and in 1861, the Offenses Against Person Act, that, that kind of innovated um, prosecution of free speech and of um, gay male sexual intimacy. So he grew up in an environment in which uh, both the way he wanted to love people and just any speech about sexuality was being increasingly controlled and, and, and penalized. Um, there had been, uh, sodomy had been a capital offense before 1861, and there had been executions, which is actually the, the number and the timeline are part of the controversy around my book. Um, but, you know, humans had been, men had been executed in Britain for, for loving each other, for being intimate with each other um, in the 19th century. And then after 1861, uh, people like Simmons were, were faced with hard labor for um, 10 years or life for sodomy. So that's his context. And so the book is really about this um, great love affair that he had by letter with this poet Walt Whitman and how the seeds of that inspiration led him at the end of his life to um, write the first gay rights manifesto. So he's thought sort of the father of gay rights and, and really a lot, you know, lost to history in a lot of ways, very forgotten. But the book is also, as I've been wondering, like what has caused the level of this controversy? You know, you mentioned that I've been an advocate for civil liberties my whole career and I really think that is part of the controversy. So the, the book has been um, kind of attacked and defended um, because of different interpretations of, of history and also because I frankly made two mistakes in interpreting um, two cases in which I thought people had been executed and they hadn't. So that's, that's been corrected or being corrected in the next edition. But the, the larger, you know, level of controversy I've never faced in my career. And I'm really thinking a reason is that the book, the bigger picture of the book, really kind of gives people a key to how the modern state invented ways to control populations through um, controlling what they say and saying, well, the state has a role in saying if you can have an abortion. The state has a role in saying you know, who you get to love or who you get to touch, you know, who's a consenting adult. Um, and these were all new uh, claims of the modern state in the mid-19th century. And they, you know, their legacy is with us to this day um, in, in terms of the constant fighting we have to do to defend our rights to privacy, our rights to free speech, our rights to, you know, free association um, from a state that, that learned in the 19th century to make these claims on us. What would mm -hmm. you say would be three crucial lessons Simmons offers to not only uh, LGBT community, but other communities out there that are trying to assert their right to, you know, 
exist and be left alone? Like, what are some of the three biggest takeaways or lessons that he teaches? You know, I'm really, really glad you asked that question in that way because, um, you know, I'm not identified as a member of the LGBTQ community, and this is this guy's message is one of the most inspiring things I've ever read. Um, so it's definitely like, as I say in the book. LGBTQ history is everybody's history, and it's definitely the case that his lessons are for all of us. So his, the number one thing that's moving about Simmons is he never gave up trying to tell the truth about love. He never gave up believing that he had a right to tell the truth about love. And he did it you know, at a time of greater and greater risk to himself. Um, so you know, as it became more and more illegal, for him to just, he wanted to write about men loving men like that, that he was a great romantic. Um, and he wanted to narrate, you know, like his reality that he, he had been attracted to men since he was a, a little person. And it wasn't, you know, uh, the, the contemporary narrative of like, you're vicious or you're immoral, um, or this is a character flaw. Um, and so he couldn't legally just write it. So he tried to write it in a historical context, you know, telling these stories of biographies of gay men in the past, like, you know, Benvenuto Cellini and Michelangelo. Um, he tried to tell it in a parable. He tried to tell it uh, through poems where he would change the pronouns of the beloved. Um, he actually, I'm kind of giving away the ending, but he actually did this amazing thing of embedding in his otherwise quite banal books of poetry code so that, you know, if you know the code and he gave a key toward the end of his life in a secret journal, if you know the code and I share it with readers, you put these books side by side and you read alternate verses, then you get this actual love story, this great love story of the man he finally married effectively, though marriage didn't exist then between men, this gondolier, Ang Angelo Fusato, who was the great love of his life. So he never gave up, you know, and, and then at the end of his life, he wrote, a Problem in Modern Ethics, which is the first kind of ringing, straightforward, I'm not going to be ashamed anymore, I'm telling my truth, uh, manifesto, basically marching the reader through all the stupid reasons <laughs> to say that gay love is terrible and, and knocking them down one after another. And this became kind of the seed of, um, you know, uh, what would become a better known book called Sexual Inversion, published after his death by someone else, Havelock Ellis which was a huge bestseller and that introduced, you know, the, the, the study of sexology, which is the way that we uh, think about human sexual variation today. That is like, we're all on a spectrum and it's all natural and, you know, nothing more or less natural than anything else um, of, of normal variation, like, you know, homosexuality and lesbianism and so on. And uh, so he, he kind of spent 50 years um, or he died quite young. So I should say 40 years, not being silenced, right? And even though he never lived to see the changes he left for us, um, he never lost faith that there would be a future in which he would have readers and in which his view, you know, would prevail. So that's number one, like never give up on telling your truth. Um, gosh, number two and number three. Well, I guess one thing that comes to mind is he always wanted to change the law and, you know, a lot of my book looks at laws and how they constrain us. Um, and so he, he never stopped, like, 
speaking truth to power and saying these laws are unjust. And, you know, look at France. They don't criminalize adult consenting homosexuality. Look at Italy. You know, these are like, you know, sane countries and civilization hasn't collapsed. So it, it is, I, you know, I, I have this website, Daily Cloud, and I've been writing about the laws since the end of America. And I really try to encourage everyone, no matter what their educational background what their walk of life is to dare to look at legislation and, and look at the laws and challenge our leaders um, and dare to try to change laws that are bad laws. Um, that's for everybody. And I guess his last thing, I guess quite moving to me is, um, you know, we, we think about LGBTQ issues kind of in a vacuum very often, or our leaders ask us to think about them that way. But Simmons was um, married to a woman He, because gay men had to kind of marry women back then. They really didn't have much choice. Um, he was a, a devoted father to four daughters who adored him. He very uncharacteristically spoke very um, honestly to them about his own journey and, and treated them very respectfully, which was not typical of Victorian fathers to their daughters at that time. And they, you know, his whole family, including his wife, accepted him. You know, I'm sure his wife was sad about his sexuality, not oriented toward her, but they all loved him so much. And, you know, his dying breath, he died of tuberculosis. His lover, Angela Fizzato, and his adult daughter, Madge, are looking after him together, you know, in this very kind of 21st century moment, you know. uh, And I guess to me, you know, I partly wrote the book because I had my, you know, I, I, I've had my own experience of being like connected to, to gay men who were like role models for me, um, two gay couples who were role models for me as a single mother when I was raising my two children, one of them's a boy and one of them's a girl. And I, I, you know, I needed to not feel so alone. And so I had this like family relationship with these beloved friends who are these two, you know, couples in, in beautiful relationships and so that that like saved my little family right so uh, to me the kind of seeing lgbtq issues and people in a uh, not in isolation or not just a relationship to their sexuality but in a, the whole context of like these are people you know whether you're gay or not or lesbian or not or transgender or not you know we are all in family relationships with each other and relationships of love and, and collegiality and, and community with each other. And um, so it's really important for everyone to be allowed to love who they want, because otherwise there's less love available for the rest of us. Right? Wow, what a crazy world right now. And I, I find it amazing that society at any point in time could actually think or have this, the audacity to decide who should, who should, should not, be able to love one another. I think it's it's pretty crazy, and maybe an indication of a society that's probably either uninvolved, uninvolved, or just completely manipulated. And this is probably going to be a two part question, but you write in the title of your book that up until 1857, the state did not have any idea of homosexuality was deviant. They they were not really interested in. But we look at various forms of organized religion, and apparently homosexuality has been a sin or it's been bad. And I'm wondering. Does the state specifically pick on the LGBT community, homosexual community back in that earlier era because they felt that if they could control and dominate one sect of society, 
one portion of the populace that the other populace didn't give much thought to, and the other populace consented to that, that the state would eventually be able to dominate everyone, and the religion would be able to dominate everyone, and hence they'd be able to get total control over the uh, spiritual trajectory and the mental trajectory of the populace. Um, well, you, you've really just said it. Like, that's the thesis of my book. Um, and so just to be, to be really clear, that there, there was no such thing. There was no such word as homosexuality before um, actually quite late in the 19th century. So the, the state did prosecute sodomy, right? Um, it, not, not many people were prosecuted compared to the population. So there wasn't, before um, 1855, 1861, before that period, there were um, many hundreds of misdemeanor uh, sentences for, like, mutual masturbation or fellatio, if, if you don't mind my saying these graphic words to your audience. Um, but they, they, they were it. misdemeanor. Sorry? I would say they can handle it. Yeah, yeah, that was case law, but there wasn't, uh, but but there there were no laws against homosexuality that didn't exist, right? So paradoxically, that gave men who loved men a fair amount of privacy because if they weren't, if there were no witnesses, right, um, or or people didn't complain, uh, if if people were consenting, it was hard for the law to reach into private life. Um, but that changed over the course of the 19th century. And then you get like legislation like in 1885, the Share Amendment, which creates a whole new category of offense called gross indecency. So what is gross indecency, right? It's so vague. It's, it's something you're supposed to have aversion to. But, um, you know, so there's that like modern kind of hinge of aversion in the homophobia that we inherit. Um, but what is it? So that criminalized like men meeting with each other, men having a social life with each other, men writing love letters to each other. It really extended the range of the state's um, intrusion way past, did you actually masturbate this person or can, can we prove it or did you actually commit sodomy with this person? Um, so that really goes to your initial interest in talking to me and mine in talking to you, which is civil liberties, right? Like now we have a state that is literally, whether you're pro-choice you know, choice or pro-life, it is very intrusive for the state in Alabama to, you know, commandeer a woman's medical records if she talks to a doctor about having an abortion. But that's the new law. I read this law. That is the new law in, in Alabama and three other states have passed similar similar uh, legislation. So that's a huge invasion of privacy, right? Um, you know, there's so many other invasions of privacy that we're just so used to. Uh, and and what, what I'm pointing out is that the, this group of people, you're exactly right. This is my theory. We're singled out by the British state, not because of some innate aversion to male-male sexual intimacy, but almost as a test case, right? Almost like, well, you know, these people, uh, you know, th this activity has been illegal in Britain since 1533, and the Old Testament does have this prohibition against men lying with men as they lie with women. That is true, right? So let's ramp that up and show everyone that the state can do, you know, ramp up and ramp up its intrusiveness, get under the covers with you. Um, and, and then you start to see more and more legislation of the state just kind of controlling what people can wear, you know, what's, 
whom they can associate with. Um, the British state exports anti-sodomy law and even laws criminalizing effeminacy and cross-dressing, you know, by 1873 in the Indian Penal Code all, to, to the colonies overseas um, and then brings it back home. And then you start to see, you know, just elaboration of the state saying, I have a role. You start to see the state saying, well, you can't even send information about contraceptives through the mail, right? That's the Indecent Advertisements Act. So over the course of the 19th century, you start to get like the state perfecting its, its, its claim that we so inherit today that it gets to say whatever it wants and, and pass laws to, to control what used to be um, private life and private choices, um, and, and definitely singling out what today we would call gay people. I definitely agree, and I argue in outrages, was um, kind of the state almost sharpening a new tool, you know, and, and almost testing and, and demonstrating. And obscenity law was the same. You know, I don't want to just focus on, on gay people or what today we would call gay people because uh, obscenity law, like before 1857, the Obscene Publications Act, Britain had a, a long history of pretty robust freedoms of speech, right? There were um, times of uh, crackdown and times like John Milton wrote a, a, a defense of free speech because he felt like he was being censored. But, excuse me, overwhelmingly, Britain had like several centuries of, of parliamentarians basically saying, you know, speech should be free. Um, and it was a high bar. To control speech, you had to be disturbing the king's peace, right? Well, what is that? That's pretty serious. So after the 1857 Obscene Publications Act, which a lot of parliamentarians had resisted censorship law for, uh, you know, all the decades of the 19th century till then, finally it passed, um, you know, nominally in response to a flood of cheap corn in Hollowell Street, this one street in Britain where they were selling pornography. And and suddenly you have what we have today, which is like this this vague law that basically says, you know, obscenity is what might corrupt a mind open to such influences. Well, what is that, right? But using a, the Obscene Publications Act, there was this, uh, you know, arrests of booksellers, not just for selling smut, but for selling information about contraception, for selling political pamphlets, right? Jacobin pamphlets. Right. It was a way to get at political dissent. Um, one of my heroines, Annie Bazant, uh, in a famous trial, lost custody of her eight year old daughter because she dared to try to tell other women, especially working class women, how to control their reproductive lives. Um, so that was deemed obscene. And and she she lost her daughter. It was a real visible display of the state saying, no, you don't. You don't have this right to free speech. Booksellers were imprisoned. Booksellers served hard labor. Printers were criminalized. So the whole idea that the state had a role to play in policing speech was was coined. And um, and I would say obscenity was used as an excuse. So yeah, these are definitely um, tools that we inherit today that the state has has appropriated to get into political speech and political dissent. And like the anti-BDS laws that just passed, you know, we have it's the First sick. Amendment. I, but it's so sick. And there's some people out there that are parading mm -hmm. around as candidates saying, oh, you know, we're for they mentioned a little bit about the Constitution, but the ones that, that seem to be legitimate, I can't believe they were actually for that. It's, I don't think there's any hope. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly. And it, you know, it, it just passed like overwhelmingly, I think a, a, a bill defending um, Israel from BDS. I don't, I haven't read that bill yet. So I don't know the details passed on a national level with very few people dissenting Democrats or Republicans. So whatever you think about Israel, right, whether you're a supporter or not, and I, I'm Jewish and I, I speak Hebrew and I happen to support the BDS movement, which is, um, uh, what is it? <laughs> Something to vest and sanction. Boycotts vest and yeah, sanction. Right? They, they passed the law saying you're not allowed to boycott Israel. They said that no country, you're, you're not allowed to legally boycott, apparently. So, you know, one of the things that captivated me about you is not only your, your passionate fight for civil liberties, which I want to thank you, thank you. because you've really you know, captivated a lot of people's attention, you raised a lot of awareness. It is also the way you've expressed feminine, feminine qualities, feminine principles. And before we go into civil liberties, I was just wondering, from your perspective, what would you consider to be three strong, healthy, feminine qualities? And how would you say that those three feminine qualities you're about to announce contrast with what society and what corporate America is pushing upon the youth of America right now? That's such an interesting question. Could you explain it a little more? Absolutely. If you were to identify what you believe, what you feel would be healthy qualities of femininity, what should a good woman, what should a strong woman have, what qualities should a strong, mentally healthy woman have, go about it, what would you define that those qualities to be, and what would you feel would be some of the ideals of how society and how corporate America wants to portray femininity as. I'll give you one example of this. It seems that every time we watch a commercial, they're always trying to tell you that a woman is only value, is only as valuable as her beauty, or a woman needs a product to find fulfillment. They do this with men too, but I think that um, with women, I feel like there's always this pressure. The women have to be a certain way, they're setting this impossible standard that, that uh, women can't live up to, and also men as well. But mm-hmm. I, only, I, only, I think that the the corporate America, they're pushing this upon us because they want to sell a product. I don't know if they're really doing this to, 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 to make right. strong, capable women who are able to think for themselves or able to, to take this sort of action. Because I don't even think that it's in the best interest of, of a corporation or the government to have a strong, well-adapted, well-informed citizenry. I see what you're saying. So, yeah, Ryan, you're um, describing, I think, the, the argument I made in The Beauty Myth, uh, which was basically um, challenging conventional Madison Avenue ideals of beauty that we see in, you know, fashion magazines and increasingly uh, younger people talk about pornography being, you know, part of an ideal that they feel they have to live up to. And um, how I argued that this too was like kind of a trick to keep women off balance and to keep them from um, moving, moving ahead uh, politically. Um, So, yeah. So I guess I would say that I don't see ideal qualities of men or women or non-binary people, for that matter, as different. Um, I love a strong person. <laughs> you know, I love a strong woman. I, you know, it's, it's women have a tougher time being strong uh, without apology because they get punished for it a lot. Um, you know, as, as we've seen recently, uh, I think in Congress, we're really seeing that, you know, women who are strong leaders get really slapped around and verbally harassed and abused. So um, I think I, I give women extra credit for being strong, especially in public. 
I like a nurturing person. You know, I love when men are nurturing. I love when women are nurturing. Men might feel more self-conscious being overtly nurturing um, because of rigid roles that they're forced into, which I don't think are any easier, frankly, and in some ways are harder to sustain than uh, the roles that women are forced into. Um, By the way, part of my book, Outrages, does deal with how, like, pardon me, stereotypes about masculinity that we inherit really got locked in in the 1870s um, as a result of certain crackdowns on, on, um, on what we would call today gay men. Like, it didn't used to be before the 1870s that straight men were not supposed to be expressive or were not supposed to physically touch other men or, you know, weren't supposed to be interested in art or decor or food um, or fashion. All of those were available to, to men of all sexualities. Uh, so, you know, this, this norm of rigid masculinity being not expressive and, you know, not, you know, just having such a limited range of things to be interested in is, is also pretty recent. Um, what's the third thing? Um, oh, gosh. I just think, you know, having been a single mom, I I just really want to tip my hat to the single moms and single parents out there because I also think that there's a kind of like resistance to exhaustion and selflessness that comes from being a single parent. And there, I guess that is a gender thing because there are more single moms than single dads and they do suffer disproportionately from poverty and overwork and sexual harassment at work so that, you know, selflessness in toward children, I, or, you know, weaker people, I definitely like that human quality. So those are my three. Thank you for sharing. And I want to struggle back to one of the books that I read of yours that had a profound impact on me, which was the end of America, a letter of warning to a young patriot. And I, and I got the warning, Naomi, I got your warning. I and got it. Yes, yeah, as, as soon as I, as soon as I read the book, I, I became very much actively involved, and I started reading a bunch of other people, and I was, really got into Ron Paul, which I've had the pleasure of not only interviewing but doing PR for, and working with a lot of other freedom-based people. So to you, I give wow. you uh, the utmost uh, deepest thanks and appreciation. And one of the things you talk Thank about, you. and you're welcome, and your book, you talk about ten ways that a society gets closed down. I'll give you a couple of them. Establish secret prisons, surveil ordinary citizens, restrict the press, target key individuals, subvert the rule of law. Wow, geez, it's, it's almost as if the U.S. government took your book and is using it as a playbook. I mean, they're using it, they're yeah. literally using it as a playbook. So where you, the book came out some years ago, where do you think we are right now and where do you think America is headed? <laughs> so based on your book. Well, that is, a, yeah, sorry. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. Um, that is a great, important question. Sadly, for you know, for those who haven't read it, um, The End of America, I wrote it in 2008, and it basically does point out 10 steps that tyrants always use, whether they're on the left or on the right, it's totally not partisan, to suppress democracy and to close a, a civil society. Um, and that's why I'm so interested in, you know, where these tactics originated in the 19th century in my current book, Outrages, but they're they're definitely related. So in the end of America, you know, I really spelled it out, like first type some, you know, scary danger. So in the Bush years, it was terrorism. And now it's like, you know, Mexican rapists um, or, or Bola, but really Mexican rapists are at the forefront. Um, you know, and then 
you you created Gulag, well, we've got Guantanamo and the National Defense Authorization Act. You uh, target whistleblowers. Um, you uh, harass the press. You um, create a situation where people can't tell truth from lies anymore. And then you start to kind of blur the line between military policing and civil policing. That's step 10. Step 10 is suspend the rule of law. So you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's exhausting, I have to say. And that's why I'm so glad to have a loyal leader and, and supporter such as you, um, because it's I've literally been warning people about this for 10 years and literally every single thing I warn them about has come true. And, you know, we're here like this is this is we're in tyranny right now. It's already you can't hear me. Is that what you said? No, I'm saying are we in tyranny right now? We're in we're in Perry tyranny. We're just before tyranny. Um, so when you've got children in cages and you've got the military, I knew this would happen, right? I I, I read that I read the bill of of the border wall, right? And a lot of money went toward um, the Navy, weirdly, and the Air Force uh, in the border bill. And I'm like, okay, well, that is a big deal because when you have military policing inside the United States um, or even even at our borders, that's a step, a big step toward tyranny because it's supposed to be the National Guard that polices because they're answerable to, to governors and governors are answerable to the people. So then, you know, at the border, it's pretty dangerous, but they're still at the border. And now I just read that they're inside the border um, looking after the detention facilities in Texas. So once you've got the military deployed within the borders of the United States of America, it really get, is game over. Um, and, and you've also got the National Defense Authorization Act started in 2012, but every year they renew it, which gives the president, any president, the power to detain anyone, you or me, or anyone without charge or trial. Um, New so Year's Eve 2011, that, they passed that. I mean, they passed it 2011. Everyone's out having a good time. And I started telling my family exactly. about that. And they're like, oh, no, no, America's free. It's a free contract. It's free. And you can walk. Because they, they just assume that the only way that tyranny is going to happen is if stormtroopers walk down the street and the theme song from Star Wars is going to be playing. That's when they think that's going to happen. I'm like, no, you don't realize it, it. Exactly. You're exactly right. I mean, people really have a misguided view about how democracy is crushed. Just as you say, they think it's like people goose stepping down in front of the White House in uniform. It's not like that. And if you study, as I did, how Germany fell, it was legally, it was through laws being passed. It was bit by bit, chipping away, chipping away. And same thing with, you know, the, the black shirts in, in Italy. Um, it, it's slow, right? And, and it can look like freedom even while you're losing your freedom. So I'm telling you that now that, the, you know, the, the military is inside our borders, Nothing stops them from, you know, rounding up opposition leaders, right? Now that you've got the Defense Authorization Act, it may not, it's like the Espionage Act, right? It's been dormant. A lot of these terrible laws are dormant, and, but they can be activated at any time. And in 2008, I was saying, I was warning people about the Espionage Act. This means that any journalist can be held and face execution, right? It's a capital offense. Well, how did they get Julian Assange? They're threatening him with the Espionage Act, you know, as I warned. And you may not like Assange, but he is 
a journalist. <laughs> he's like he's he, he you know published these documents, right? He's not even a U.S. citizen, and and the Espionage Act is being used to threaten all journalists who are watching. So, absolutely, you know, children in cages that can't be that are, are being held by pr- really private companies are running those detention centers. I we did a a, a report on this for Daily Clout, my company. Um, and and members of Congress are going down and being turned away, right? Well, the, if if the leader of if your elected representative can't see kids in detention by the United States of America, right? Then it's it's not democracy anymore because now it's just these. They always start with hated outsiders or marginalized outsiders, and then it's like two or three beats until they come for journalists, opposition leaders. Um, you know, union leaders, uh, outspoken clergy, it's always the same cast of characters, but it's, it's you and me. And once that happens, you've got a, a closed society within six months. So okay, we say closed society we're, within we're, six we're months, there. what we just, does that mean that they're, what they're going to, if you were to describe the trajectory of the U.S., you said it's like just on the cusp of a tyranny. And then how will we know when we have total tyranny? Well, I'd encourage you, Ryan, to ask, not ask the question in that way. Okay. Because every single loss it's like it's like how do you die really right you can lose um liver function and not be dead yet but be really sick you can lose your eyesight and not be dead yet um you can you know lose respiratory capacity and not be dead yet right but these are all i mean maybe not eyesight but when you when your your vital organs start to give out, it, it's only a matter of time before the whole system collapses. So um, let's look at what's been happening lately. I mean, I would say we're there, right? I, I would say it's hollowed out already. I mean, we have, we have foreign governments determining the outcome of our elections, right? So that's, that's a huge uh, I mean, what what is a democracy? It's a it's a, a a society in which people's vote counts, right? So we no longer have that. Um, there's no longer uh, press accountability, right? So the president no longer feels accountable, and increasingly Congress doesn't either, to news outlets. And there's so much fake news, which I warned about in 2013. It was called crazy. Um, there's so much fake news that it's hard for people to tell what's real and what's not. So the free press is another giant pillar of democracy. That's kind of gone or, or impotent, right? And that's what you get in a dying democracy. It's less like dramatic changes in scenery and more like things are hollowed out. They look the same. You still have the New York Times, but can the New York Times really report on a national security issue, you know, without horrible consequences? Um, you know, no. Uh, can can journalists really report freely looking at Julian Assange being threatened with execution? Well, not so robustly, right? So you've got that gone. You've got kids in cages, and I would say, yeah, I honestly, that it's, it's beyond horrible, though. It's theater, Ryan, right? Like, I was a former political consultant. The images that come from the border are designed to freak us out. They're designed to scare us. There's no earthly reason children have to be under, like, blankets made of mylar lying on the floor. That's theater. 
that's saying we can do this to you. This is what it looks like when we get our hands on you. Um, it, it, it's showcasing the power of this government or any government to do what it wants with citizens. Uh, it ha- happens to start with outsiders, but that's always the case. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. Ooh, about you, the I love the I love the point you made, and I know you were talking about Germany in your book, and I was looking at this one event that happened. We were in our Germany, which is the hyperinflation, and it's because you know they they. they country was you know printing out a lot of money and i feel like we're on the same exact trajectory as we're in mar germany and zimbabwe as far as the printing press goes so we've uh, done several shows on the coming economic uh, collapse chris hedges has written, written extensively about it i do believe it's going to happen but right. i wonder when it does happen if america is going to go hardcore tyranny or if it's going to be so catastrophic and so worldwide that it'll force people to um the, the trauma of it will force people to rediscover democracy and if the state of the power of the state will be diminished to the point where because they can no longer print infinite amount of currency, that they'll lose their capability of employing people to infringe upon others. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. I mean, these are great questions, Ryan. I, sadly, I would say, um, you know, collapse like that, if there isn't a living democracy underlying the economy, it, it just actually softens up a population for tyrants to solidify power, as in, as in you know, Germany, as in, I would say, the Soviet Union, um, you know, the former Soviet Union. Uh, on the contrary, I mean, people, if people were, were, I know that we love this narrative, which actually comes from Marx, right? I'm not saying you're a Marxist, but the, the kind of expectation comes from Marx that there's a point at which things can be so shocking and awful that it wakes people up, right? That's right out of the Communist Manifesto. Um, but sadly, it really doesn't work that way at a certain point. Uh, I, I think if we haven't noticed how shocking and awful things have been for the last 10 years, like Guantanamo is still open, right? There are people who have been there for 11 years. I mean, you know, there. how, how much more shocking do things have to be? Um, you know, we've got a, a, a president, and it's not a partisan thing, but he's he's urging uh, invective at opposition leaders. Like that's unprecedented in, in our nation's history. Maybe it's in the very early years of our republic, people were that bellicose, but it's really kind of black shirt level stuff, like drumming up harassment and threats of violence against the opposition. It's not how a democracy works. A democracy is defined by a peaceful transfer of power. And that includes like not whipping up threats of, of violence against people. Um, so I guess my view is, and this is aimed at, I, I'm more angry at the left than the right right now, because for, for the Obama years, I was yelling and screaming, look, this guy has a kill list for Americans, American citizens. He's taking out American citizens with drone strikes. But because it was Obama, they and you know, they didn't care. He's our guy. It can't be that bad. He's our guy. Obama was like the worst Justice Department against whistleblowers, worse than worse than Bush, too. Um, but I couldn't get my own people to pay attention. And so now Trump is elected, and they're running around screaming, and I'm like. I have no sympathy for you. I have no sympathy for you. You should have been screaming when your own guy was in power because tyranny is tyranny. 
um, and the not, you know, you didn't defend the Constitution when it needed defending. Now you're upset. Like you should have been upset when your own guy was disemboweling the Constitution. So, uh, you know, I'm mad. Like the con- you were supposed to be protecting the Constitution above party. And no one did that on the left, you know, during the Obama years. Like there were six people on the left, like me, Glenn Greenwald, Amy, uh, Amy Goodman, and I, I can barely Maybe Dennis Kucinich. Dennis Kucinich. Was- Dennis Kucinich, certainly, um, who were consistent. But everyone else went to sleep on the left. So uh, I guess that's just a long way of answering your question, saying I don't ex- – if people aren't upset now, they're not paying attention. Jeez. Oh, and I just – you know, reading your books and not just, you know, the end of America, but your other books. I, I love the fact that you have this, you know, such a passionate spirit that you really are pushing for, um, you're fighting for a lot of people, fighting for everyone. You're really going to push this information out. So I think it's inspiring. And I wish we can get that spark in our country. I wish more people were motivated like you when writing about you. So when you see tyrannies and you see other forms of oppressive government, how do they end? How do they ultimately end, regardless of how powerful they are? I mean, what is a do, or do or do some governments that are so powerful like the one in the U.S. right now, the tyranny in the U.S. I wonder how long this is going to last. I wonder if this is going to be a long-term thing. If we're going to have this, you know, definitely, if people want freedom, they're going to have to eventually escape, or if we'll actually have or taste freedom once again. I don't know. I mean, you know, this is a question to ask, but it's as I've been saying for so long, it all depends on us, right? I mean. There, there is a lot more awareness. I should, I should kind of segue to a happier note. There is a lot more awareness now across the political spectrum of threats to democracy and how fragile our democracy is in America than there was 10 years ago. I think, you know, a lot of people are aware. They don't always know what to do, which is why we started Daily Cloud, to, to give people tools to pass bills and to inform each other about legislation. Um, but I do, it doesn't take, just like it doesn't take that much to close a democracy, it really doesn't take much to, to restore one if, if enough people are awakened and agitated and organizing as long as certain um, benchmarks haven't been passed. So it, it's really up to us, but we really don't have any time left at all. Like we're at the zero hour. Um, that said, you know, if, if your listeners and their listeners and their listeners um, take action, you know, and hold our representatives accountable and, and really, you know, I hope you go to Daily Cloud and use Bill Cam, our technology there to pass laws, to get money out of politics, to, you know, enforce the emoluments clause, to clean up our system in the ways that we need to clean it up and, and, and you know, pass a humane border bill, um, get the military out of, out of our streets. Uh, I, I do, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I do feel hopeful, but it does take that informed, energized citizenry, and that's where, that's where you and I and our listeners come in. It's up to us. Dr. Naomi Wolf, it was a great honor to have you with us. I mean, when I first started the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, you were one of those people who I thought it would be a wonderful experience to interview, and, and it just happened. So thank you so much again. Ms. Wolf, Dr. Wolf is author of the book, Outages, Sex, Censorship, the criminalization of love. You can learn more about Miss Wolf by going to her website at out, outrages, outragesbook.com. I'll put it on the link. You've done a lot of other wonderful things, Miss Wolf. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I loved talking to you, and thank you for inviting me onto your show. I appreciate it. 
Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth. Special thanks to our phenomenal guest, Miss Naomi Wolf. And special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Lisa Kaza, and Miss Constance Tellis. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. Until the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take good care and thank you so much for listening.